Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast series on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining us for today's conversation, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable and Impact Investing Strategist for the Americas. Uh, we're glad to welcome back to the SI Perspectives podcast series, Dan Rorty of AB Alliance Bernstein. Dan serves as Chief Investment Officer for sustainable thematic equities for the firm. So with that, Amantia, Dan, it's great to be with you both. And thank you for spending some time today with our listeners and clients. Welcome back. Thanks, Dan. Really happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So up front for our listeners, I do want to point out that our conversation today will tie right into the latest edition of the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, which can now be located on UBS.com slash CIO. Now, within SI Perspectives, among the topics covered are takeaways from the 2023 voter proxy season. So with that in mind, Amantia, with the season now behind us, what are some overall reflections, takeaways that stood out to you? Thanks, Dan. Yeah, this uh, is now becoming our, our tradition here of, of discussing the wrap-up of the season. Um, and I'll say, in some ways, some of the takeaways this year are not too dissimilar from the ones from uh, the 2022 season. Uh, more specifically, um, last year, the SEC made some amendments to the process that allows shareholders to, um, to, to kind of put in proposals uh, for companies, which resulted in a 2022 season that saw way more sustainability or environmental and social related proposals put forward for companies than prior years. Now, this year in 23, again, we, we saw the same thing happening here. We saw an increase uh, kind of directionally in the number of proposals submitted. Now, with the, with a higher denominator here, uh, we also saw this year for a second year a relatively lower rate of approval of the social and environmental uh, kind of uh, uh, submissions for for companies, uh, which were not voted by their AGM. Now, what's interesting is that in part. Um, we say that this is expected, right? As I'm hinting here, and, and as, as the denominator increases, as, as we've seen more of these resolutions come forward, we would also expect that the quality or, uh, of, of some of these resolutions would potentially be lower, and therefore just the, kind of the number of approvals would decrease. On the other hand, becoming here specific, we also see some large institutional investors become perhaps more prudent in the number uh, of, of uh, resolutions that they were approving or voting for, uh, which uh, probably also had an impact in, in the lower relative approval rate. Uh, many of these larger investors um, cited uh, resolutions as, as being too specific this year. So, so that's the second thing that I would note. Now, the third thing that is worth highlighting from the season is that we're seeing, in a way, two-way proposals being submitted to the same company. Um, the same kind of company, and we looked at Exxon as one example in this month's report. Um, it's all this year, both um, shareholder proposals that uh, were pushing it kind of to, to accelerate really rapidly its path towards sustainability. We uh, saw a shareholder resolution that was, in, in, in essence, against um, kind of sustainability, and uh, it aimed, it proposed Exxon to limit its decarbonization efforts. And both of these ones, which we would consider to be on opposite ends of the spectrum, 
saw very low approval rates from, from investors, both at the single-digit level with the, with the pro-sustainability one being a little bit more favored, but, but not that much. Now, what's interesting here, again, keeping Exxon as one example, um, was that we also saw two additional proposals, which gave double-digit traction. Um, and those were called more, called more down the middle type of proposals. One looked at, uh, requiring Exxon to, to focus its strategy to reduce methane emissions, which is a different greenhouse gas, um, that is, and, and it is, um, something that we know the environmental, uh, regu- regulatory agency in the U.S. is looking to impose restrictions on. So this report received, received 36% support. Uh, and again, we think this is one of the topics that is, that is more material and that is reflected also in how shareholders voted in this case. Um, so just using this as an example really to illustrate how we're becoming both more specific, perhaps also still tied to materiality here, to financial relevance. Um, and this conversation is one that will keep definitely having and, and watching over time. Well, thank you, Amantia, for sharing what stood out to you. Some interesting takeaways, in particular, that example uh, specific to Exxon. Uh, Dan, to get your thoughts from your vantage point, what stood out to you this year? Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I think we saw a lot of the, you know, really the same things that, that um, you know, Amantia um, saw as well. So, you know, a record number of proposals and, and, and really declining voter support for those proposals. Um, and, you know, I think it, you know, to us, it, it shows the rising recognition of just the importance of social issues. But it probably also speaks to the fact that, you know, as Amante mentioned, that a lot of these proposals were lower quality. Um, you know, I might phrase it a little, a little differently to just say that they were, um, more political, a little less connected to financial materiality than, than in the past. Um, and, and something else Amante mentioned, which I think was really, you know, really key as well. Um, it's that so many more of these proposals have become a lot more prescriptive, which, you know, speaking from the investor side of the, the, the house, you know, I can tell you that a lot of investors generally don't like that. Um, you know, investors can broadly support something like increased disclosure, but they may not want to support an overly prescriptive approach to that issue um, and instead want to leave that, you know, to some degree in the hands of the management team who, you know, can know the workings of the business a little bit better. Um, you know, we, we, for example, you know, we looked at this year, there were proposals that were requesting financial and, and insurance um, issuers to stop all underwriting or lending activity for new fossil fuel development, right? It's very, very prescriptive. Um, and we know that those proposals received something like 7% uh, support, right? So very, very low. Uh, but then on the other hand, there were proposals that, that were asking for just more disclosure of companies' climate transition plans, right? So a lot less prescriptive. Uh, and those received average support of, of something closer to 30%, right? So we saw a lot of differences based on, on how prescriptive the proposals were. So, you know, generally, I, you know, I think we're continuing to see a trend of recognizing that private sector companies have a much bigger societal role to play than was probably appreciated in the past. But there are still some growing pains um, as the industry is, is really grappling with how best to handle that, right? There's clearly a disconnect between some more activist, socially driven stakeholders um, and maybe shareholders on a number of issues. And so, you know, I think this proxy season showed that we're, you know, we're we're still trying to find the right balance. As a follow-up along the lines of shareholder participation, we have been hearing that the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, is considering further amendments to shareholder voting process. This in an effort to create an easier path for shareholder proposals, making it to the ballot. What do you see, Dan, as being the implications there? I think there are probably a couple of implications there. Um, 
you know, and I, I would say that, that, that one is that if we, um, you know, if, if we open the door to, to more proposals, you know, as, as, you know, we've, we clearly have been, been moving to do, um, we're going to see more proposals, um, and we're going to probably see more, um, you know, overtly, Political proposals or groups who are looking to take a, uh, a social stand one way um, or, or or another. So, so I think clearly one of the implications is that we will see a continued or increased politicization of of the um, of the proxy proposal. Um, you know, and you know, interestingly, again, we're we're already seeing this. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. We we are already seeing these trends. Um, we've, you know, as Amantia mentioned, we've had a record number of proposals. Um, you know, last year and and, and the year before that. And, and it, they're not all from, let's say, environmentalists or, or very liberal-leaning um, um, uh, people. In, in, in the first half of this year, the so-called anti-ESG proponents submitted something like 90 proposals, almost 90 proposals. That was probably up 70% from the year before and up two or 300% from 2021, right? So, you know, we're already seeing a lot more activity from both the, the, the pro-ESG and the anti-ESG side of the ledger. And I think as we lower the bar uh, for, for bringing some of these proposals, you know, to vote, I think that's, you know, unfortunately, that's, that's probably going to just, you know, continue. Um, I, I think there is there's another interesting implication of, of this, you know, what, if, if we're lowering the bar to do this, and, and that has to do with the costs that the companies themselves are incurring as the volume of proposals increases. So, um, you know, according to an SEC study, um, a company incurs um, several hundred thousand dollars to process a single proposal. But importantly, that that doesn't include the opportunity costs associated with having the board and and the management's time focused on dealing with these proposals as opposed to you know to going out and, and creating um, you know an actual value creating activities that the company could otherwise be doing so the costs are, are actually significantly higher um, than just those direct costs and you know again I think that's an important implication because you know all shareholders bear those costs the real costs and the opportunity costs whether you're a pro ESG proponent or an anti ESG proponent or you know you're somewhere in between uh, even though only a, you know a small minority of shareholders are submitting these proposals the costs are, are really borne by anyone so I think you know th- th- those are some of the you know the, the 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 implications right I think we'll see more proposals they'll certainly have a more political edge um, as we've seen this year and in prior years, they'll probably continue to get very little shareholder support uh, because they're less likely to be connected to financially material issues. Um, and you know, ultimately, this really does create real costs that all all shareholders uh, you know should be thinking about. I think one thing that is important in this conversation is that while we're very focused on understanding uh, shareholder resolutions and the outcomes every year of the proxy season, really where we're seeing a lot of the change happen, and Dan, maybe you'll agree with me, is is in that uh, in those engagements that investors will have with companies uh, that maybe don't make it to the ballot or that do make it to the ballot and then get withdrawn. And so I would I would just caution our listeners here to, to to not look at these numbers and these proposals themselves as well as the support levels and just think, you know, that that's the all end all and be all. In fact, a lot of the change is happening in more productive, uh, more collaborative spaces where companies and investors are coming together to say what is the roadmap for sustainability and what is realistic here in the near term. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that entirely, Amanti. That's the right. That's always been a, a, an incredibly productive um, part of the investment process. So um, when when uh, when when these proposals get um, uh, you know they, they get settled or, or you know emitted before actually going to a vote, 
Um, you know, and unfortunately, one of the things that we've seen in the last uh, year or two is that we we are seeing fewer of the proposals are actually getting settled um, in a more productive or constructive way. Um, more of them are actually finding their way to a vote. And again, since, you know, as Monty mentioned right before, a lot of these are lower quality. They're just getting less support. So um, but but I think, you know, you, you do raise a you know, you raise an interesting um, and, and a really important point, these shareholder votes are not the only path that investors have to kind of create value and engage with companies and, and, and actually, um, you know, move them in, in, uh, in, in, in the right direction. So just to take a step back for a moment, Amantia, how would you characterize the health of the ESG sustainable fund landscape uh, this in a year which has delivered an uptick of anti-ESG rhetoric? This is one of those questions that, that we are closely watching. It's one of the most frequent questions that our clients ask us uh, this, this year. Um, I, I say uh, we, we discussed this a few months ago as well. I mean, very briefly, although we're seeing uh, kind of very clear anti-ESG rhetoric, just like we're seeing pro-ESG rhetoric in some ways, some polarization on the conversation. We've seen um, at the state level increased levels of uh, policymaking, these either kind of regulatory or, or kind of legislative. We are pushing asset managers to or pension funds uh, to kind of reconsider whether they can look at ESG criteria or in some cases outright banning whether uh, fund managers can look at ESG criteria in their investments. So all of these things are, are definitely kind of undeniable facts. With that said, um, we are also still seeing a conversation around that, that moves beyond those three letters of E, S, and G, especially the, the three letters that become one concept, and looks at how environmental, social, and, and in particular governance elements are still financially relevant to company performance. And so perhaps one of those kind of implications or takeaways once uh, some of the conversation and the dust settles in the next few months or years, we'll see, uh, will be further recognition of materiality, further disaggregation of the idea of ESG into its underlying components um, that, that drive actual financial performance while taking into account of environmental or, you know, people's well-being. So we're seeing perhaps inching towards that as an end state now. I think it's really important to, to note that, um, you know, despite some of the, you know, the, the anti-ESG rhetoric, which, which, by the way, isn't a new phenomenon, right? So we have been hearing, you know, more and more of that over the last several years. So it's not really a 2023 phenomenon. Um, but I'd say, that, you know, the, the, the investing landscape for, for sustainable funds or, or, you know, ESG funds, and I agree with them, that the, the acronym is less and less meaningful over time. But, but just for sustainable funds in general, it, it's actually remained fairly healthy. And I think that's pretty important for a lot of clients to, to understand. Um, flows are down versus 2021, let's say, which was a record year, but they're still relatively, you know, good versus general equity flows. Um, sustainable assets under management, right? If we want to kind of broadly define that, um, we're just under 6% of total industry AUM that's active and passive combined. That's the same as last year. It's up from 3% in 2019. Um, outside the U.S., sustainable funds are still gaining share in most, in most regions. You know, Europe is very strong. Um, and even in the U.S., where there's been some backtracking, there's been a little bit more of that anti-ESG rhetoric. Um, um, uh, passive funds have been losing share, but the active funds seem to be maintaining share. So, you know, I'd say broadly speaking, um, investors do seem to be staying the course, even in the face of some of this, you know, greater criticism. Um, and I kind of agree with Amantia that, that, you know, going forward, I actually think a lot of the, the, this ESG criticism or, or this, this, you know, this anti-ESG rhetoric um, is actually kind of positive for the industry. 
um, the more questions that are asked by clients, the more sustainable funds or ESG funds have to justify what they're doing and why they're doing it, the more they have to measure, the more they have to disclose. Um, and all of that greater transparency is ultimately great for investors. Um, you know, weaker players that don't have really strong investment underpinning for what they do are likely to exit the market under that pressure. And, you know, I think ultimately clients are going to be left with a, you know, a stronger pool of investment options to choose from. But, you know, in general, I think one of the, the really important messages is that, you know, despite a continuation of some of the rhetoric, uh, you know, the industry itself is, is, is still actually pretty healthy. So with that in mind, Dan, and that's very encouraging to hear as far as putting money to work, any sustainability related themes in particular at the moment that you're most excited about? We continue to think that themes that are connected to sustainability provide a great foundation for alpha-seeking portfolios. And, and that's you know, very simply, that's because addressing challenges that are related to the climate, related to healthcare, um, building and maintaining social and economic prosperity, um, right? That those are not just the jobs of governments around the world. Um, addressing those issues requires the participation of the private sector. So it creates powerful opportunities for long-term economic value creation, and investors can definitely benefit from that in their portfolios. Um, lots of things we like today. I'll just mention two, just to keep it kind of brief. Um, you know, one would be uh, the themes of, of kind of reshoring and infrastructure development. Uh, so on reshoring, COVID-19. Uh, you know, as well as just, I'd say, general tensions between the U.S. and China, right, have highlighted that supply chains are, are very vulnerable to global conflict. So we're going to continue to see a trend of manufacturing of key goods being, bought, uh, of being brought back closer to home in many countries. So for the U.S., that might mean that we're developing manufacturing capabilities in the U.S. itself and maybe in Mexico, in places like Monterey. Um, in Europe, it might mean deepening manufacturing infrastructure in Eastern Europe. Um, and, and then Beyond reshoring specifically, it's clear that there's just a vast need to develop quality and resilient infrastructure around the world to support a growing population, to support urbanization, and, and just to deal with the challenges of climate change. Um, public spending on infrastructure can really it provides really strong long-term growth tailwinds, uh, but it also has the nice feature that that kind of spending tends to be buffeted from economic weakness to some degree because investing in infrastructure is one way that governments stimulate their economies. So, so it can be nicely counter-cyclical. Um, lots of good ways for investors to access themes like uh, of reshoring and infrastructure development and portfolios. Um, there's a role for smart factories and factory automation. Um, design software uh, for factories and also infrastructure is going to play a role. Um, energy infrastructure is going to play a role. Um, resource efficiency is, is, is going to be a big issue, notably fresh water and water infrastructure. Uh, there's also a need to build out industrial real estate and logistics capabilities as we move supply chains. So we think this is a, this is a really large theme. It's very robust. Um, and I think it's, it's particularly interesting right now because it does also have that counter-cyclical um, flair to it. Uh, and then maybe the other one that I would mention just because is artificial intelligence, because you have to talk about artificial intelligence these days. And, and you know, and for good reason, um, it's definitely an area where we're going to see tremendous amounts of incremental capital deployed for decades. So there's a lot of growth optionality there. Um, we, we know we're still very early. Um, we know that this is going to impact every single company um, out there in some way. Uh, it's, it's frankly probably too early to come up with any sort of definitive list of winners and losers. Um, but we actually just published a blog on artificial intelligence a few weeks ago highlighting um, something that we're not sure everyone's really been focused on in all the hype, and that's the, the absolutely massive energy demands of artificial intelligence. 
the energy needed to power ChatGPT could power the average American home for 120 years. And the energy requirements to train these models are increasing by 275 times every two years. So this is really kind of, you know, a, a, you know massive, massive growth that we're seeing. So we think some opportunities that, that um, ways to, to access this for sustainable portfolios um, include certainly hardware and software, um, specifically semiconductors, uh, right? And companies that improve processing power and efficiency are key, which, you know, include all the GPU manufacturers that we've been reading a lot about. Um, it's also companies that manufacture semis and enable improvements in semiconductor design. Um, it's data-centered design and components, things like power supplies and optical networking. Um, and it's also renewables to, to, to replace fossil fuels. You know, people aren't quite as focused on this, but scope three emissions for all businesses are going to go up dramatically um, as artificial intelligence proliferates and, and we all use data more and more. Um, and so that's going to increase pressure to, you know, on, on all of us to find lower carbon power solutions uh, going forward. So there's just a few you know, that, that, that I would comment. Uh, you know, I'd say it still remains a really robust landscape for, for, for themes that are connected to different sustainability issues. Well, there's a lot there in the way of investment considerations. So Dan and Amantia, thank you both for the timely and the actionable insights and for spending some time with our listeners and our clients today on the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast. Thanks a lot. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.